Hi, my name is Catherine. Throughout this series, we are reading each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we recite Psalm 118, 14 through 29. The Lord is my strength and my power. The Lord has become my salvation. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God who has given us light. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will exalt, extol you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word. We pray now as we open up the scriptures that you would open up our hearts to receive all that you're saying and doing in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm Glenn Packham, the pastor here at New Life Downtown. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here on Palm Sunday. Uh, I, I had a, a pretty special weekend, uh, mostly because I finally watched a movie that everyone in my household has been talking about. Actually, more accurately, my wife and our older two girls, they saw the movie in the theater a month or so ago, and ever since then, every day, the songs from this movie have been blasting in our home. You might wonder what this movie is, but I think you already know it's The Greatest Showman. That's right. And so I've known these little lines from these songs over and over again. You know, every night I lie in bed, the brightest colors in my head, a million dreams. Yeah. And I've known all the different phrases, you know, from the different songs. In fact, our downtown staff even did a lip sync choreography to rewrite the stars. Even if you weren't at the volunteer gala, you probably saw the Facebook video. If not, you can go find it. But it's a totally different thing to know a few lines of the song and to even know the choreography behind some of the songs. That's totally different from actually knowing the whole song. 
And more than that, not just knowing the song, but knowing the story in which the song is set. And so when I watch the movie and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, that's where he sings that song? Or like, that's where they sing Rewrite the Stars? And I was totally into it, Zendaya and Zach. You know, I was like, this is so great. And, and, and you realize all of a sudden the song takes on new meaning when you know the story and you know the rest of the song. Well, Palm Sunday... At Palm Sunday, we know a few lines of a very famous song. We know these lines that they sing on Palm Sunday. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are just a few lines from an old song. And the song is Psalm 118. And it's one thing to know a few of those lines. It's another thing to say, well, what's the rest of the song? What does the rest of the song say? And not just what does the rest of the song say, but actually, is there a story that goes along with this? So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 118. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens or use an app on your phone or whatever helps. But verse 1, the song begins in a very familiar way. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. What the songwriter is doing is he's saying, good, let Israel, that's let the people of God, let them be the ones who know that his steadfast love. Then they say, let the house of Aaron, that's the priest, those are the ones who are sort of on the inside of all of this. He said, let those people say your steadfast love. And then he brought broadens out the circle and says, let all who fear the Lord, even if they're not ethnically Jewish, even if they're not technically in this nation, let all the far-flung peoples begin to know that the steadfast love of Yahweh, of the Lord, endures forever. Now this phrase shows up again and again throughout the scripture, but actually it shows up the most in the Psalms. The phrase is the steadfast love. Now, that, it's a phrase for us in English, but it's actually a single word in Hebrew, and you've heard me talk about this. It's this word hesed, and hesed refers to God's covenantal love, God's loyal love, and it's used 244 times in the Old Testament, but in the Psalms, it appears 126 times. Think of that. Out of 244 uses... It shows up 126 times in the Psalms. That means that whenever we're, I mean, and that's far and away more than everything. First Samuel's the next closest thing, and it's got 12 references. But when it comes to songs and prayers, that's when they talk about God's steadfast love. See, here's what I think. I think God's steadfast love is our song. God's steadfast love is our song. It's the thing we sing about. It's the thing we keep coming back to. When you lose the words to pray, pray about the steadfast love of the Lord. When you've lost your song in the night, when everything is turned against you, when everything seems dark and dim and forgotten and lost, you say, I don't know what to sing about. I can't sing about this and I can't sing about that and I can't sing about my life and I can't sing about my job and I can't sing about my friends. Sing about the steadfast love of the Lord. God's steadfast love is our song. I think there's a reason why the, 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 the highest concentration of usage of this word, has said, is in the Psalms. It's a way of saying to us, when you don't know what else to sing about, sing about God's steadfast love. 
I love the, the, the children's author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, when she talks about the love of God, she coins this phrase. It's kind of a long way of saying it, but we really don't have enough English words to describe the power of this one Hebrew word. And so she says, it's God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I think that's amazing, and this is why I think sometimes adults should read kids' Bibles too, you know, to remember the power of this. The Jesus Storybook Bible is this phrase where she says it over and over again. It's God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. If you're looking for something to sing about, sing about God's steadfast love. When you've lost your song, sing about God's steadfast love. And then the psalmist goes on, and in verse 5, he says, Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me. And I want you to look here at all the things the psalmist says that God does. He says, The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now the psalmist is saying, not only is God's steadfast love our song, God's steadfast love is our salvation. It's God's steadfast love that is our salvation. And I love the contrast here. He says, look, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in people. And some of you know this. You've had firsthand experience of people letting you down. So, yeah, no kidding. No one's love is as good as God's steadfast love. And I pray you all experience rich relationships. But just know that even the best friend and the best human relationship cannot compare to the refuge that God's steadfast love is. And then he says, it's even better than trusting in princes. Now, this is fun because, you know, we, we don't, we're not a monarchy. But imagine back in the day when you had kings and queens and princes and princes. The, what's, the whole, what's the whole appeal of a prince? Well, a prince appeals to your hope for the future. Because you may have a lousy king, but you're like, well, maybe the prince will be better. And you may say, well, this guy, this is a rotten ruler, but he's got a son. One day it'll all change. Now, I know we can't relate to this every four years. Right? One day it'll be better. And many Christians over the weekend were distraught to find that despite a Republican-controlled House and Congress and White House, that a budget passes that has millions of dollars of funding that remains in it for Planned Parenthood. And it maybe should wake us up a little bit that no matter what party you think is going to save you, they will fail you. And no matter what prince you think you can take refuge in, they cannot compare to the Lord himself. And so the psalmist says this, only God's steadfast love can be our salvation. And you know what I've discovered? It's worth reminding ourselves that we're lousy at picking a savior. Oh, we're lousy at it. I mean, we just, we kind of misidentify all the time. And not only in the stories of Scripture, but I think this can be seen in a microcosm at the short history of the Denver Broncos quarterbacks. <laughs> now, I first moved here in the summer of 2000, and a friend invited me to go to a Broncos game. And at the time, the Broncos quarterback was Brian Greasy. I mean, his dad was great, him not so much, right? 
But everybody thought, okay, Brian Greasy. I mean, Mike Shanahan said Brian Greasy could be the one to take over from Elway. So here I am sitting in the nosebleeds watching the Broncos play the Raiders. And this was that time when the Raiders had a very old Jerry Rice still playing for them now instead of San Francisco. And I'm watching, and Greasy's leading the Broncos offense, and we're almost about to score at the two-yard line, and Greasy throws a pick six that gets to return like the length of the field, and you just sort of knew this guy's not it. And then I remember, but I said, yeah, I'm in. I'm going to be a Broncos fan, right? And then we traded, and we got Jake Plummer. Remember this? Jake the Snake, baby. And everybody was like, well, don't worry about his career in Arizona. It's Arizona. He'll be different in Denver. And he was kind of exciting in Denver, scrambling, doing all this stuff. And then he takes us to the AFC Championship game. We lose to the Steelers. Do you remember this? Are you bored? This is important Colorado history, people. This is essential stuff. And then we realized Jake the Snake is not going to lead us to the promised land, so we drafted Jay Cutler. Now, I'll never forget this because, you know, it was, it was in December. Our second child, Nora, was born on December 3rd, 2006. We were in the hospital. The next day, I think, was December 4th, and it was the first time Jay Cutler was going to start, and they benched Plummer. And so I waited to make sure Holly was okay and baby Nora was asleep, and they turned on the TV in the hospital room. And I watched Jay Cutler, and I thought, this is it. I was there when the new era began, you know. And it was exciting for a couple years. Then they fired Mike Shanahan. And, 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 and Shanny on his way out was like, don't touch the offense. Leave the offense intact. Instead, they hired a coach from that evil empire that must not be named out in New England. <laughs> and we got a coach that came in and decided to just blow up the whole offense. And so he trades away Cutler. And we get Kyle Orton. We are terrible at picking a savior. And Kyle Orton comes in, they win the first six games. You're like, well, I don't know, maybe this is going to work out. Maybe Orton was bad because Chicago, but hey, Kyle Orton. Then we lose like the next however many finish the year, I don't even know, you know. But then, then we got the Tebow era going. I knew, I, I knew that's what, yeah, it was exciting until it wasn't. <laughs> Until he completed like two passes, you know, and you're like, really? Like, this isn't going to work, is it? And then we got Peyton Manning. This was the Broncos' messianic age. <laughs> Went to the Super Bowl four times. Uh, excuse me, four, twice in four years, won once. Praise the Lord. Manning retires. Like, this is great. And then we think the future is... Trevor, how do you say his last name again? Simeon. <laughs> and then that doesn't work out so well, so we bring Brock back. Like, oh, maybe Brock, you know, he was the plan. No, not so much Brock. How about Paxton Lynch? No, the pirate is not the future. And then now we have Case Keenum. We are bad at picking a savior. <laughs> I don't even know, the number five draft pick. I don't even know. Maybe we shouldn't pick a quarterback because it's probably not going to work. And so, thus concludes the short history of the Denver Broncos quarterbacks to show you that we are bad at picking saviors. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to do this. And so then the psalmist goes on. He says in verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The psalmist says, you know what, we've had it, we've had all kinds of bad, but you, the Lord himself, has become our salvation. And this verse is an even older song. It's the song they sang after the parting of the Red Sea. It's back in Exodus. 
And so now they're saying, look, we, haven't we known this before? Haven't we learned our lesson that it's God himself who is our salvation and our song? And then he says some more things here in verse 21 that, I th- that really shed some light. He says, I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders here is a metaphor for the people who know. The architects of the future the ones who know how to make the nation strong. And the psalmist says, there's a stone that even the builders, the people who are supposed to know, the who's who's, rejected. But that's the stone that's become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so the psalmist says, not only is God's love our salvation, but actually God's salvation comes in surprising ways. God's salvation arrives in surprising ways. And maybe they were thinking about Moses. They were already thinking about Exodus. Maybe they were thinking about Moses. Moses was the leader that his own people rejected. Remember this? He'd murdered a guy, and so his people were like, we don't want you as our leader, right? And God says, I'm going to use that guy. Like, no, not him. No, that guy. And so all of a sudden, it's part of their story now that God uses the most surprising, unexpected things to bring his salvation. I mean, we know this. We see this in glimpses. It's what makes Alpha so remarkable. Like, on the surface, you're like, wait, so you're going to invite people for a meal? Then you're going to talk to them about, like, who Jesus was? And, like, that's somehow supposed to make them believe? Well, somehow, yes. (laughs) Somehow millions of people around the world yeah, it's, it's surprising. It almost doesn't make sense. So, so a group of people gather on a Sunday morning in the oldest auditorium in Colorado Springs with squeaky chairs, and somehow God shows up and meets them there? Yes. Somehow, yes. And so God's salvation keeps arriving in surprising ways. And once we catch that, now we're ready for how this song is used on the first Palm Sunday. And so we come to that part that gets quoted, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Now Brian said this during the worship time. Hosanna, Hosianna, save us now. It's a desperate cry. And it's right here from Psalm 118. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And the different gospel writers quote from Psalm 118. In fact, Psalm 118 is one of the most quoted songs by the New Testament. And so in Matthew's gospel, Matthew paints the picture and the scene goes like this. He has the crowds gathered there in Matthew 21. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now all of these phrases... All of these phrases meant something very radical. The son of David meant the one who was going to be the real and true king. Remember Psalm 118 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in princes. The son of David, David the greatest king. If someone's the son of David, he's the one that's supposed to be the best king ever. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is how God's salvation is supposed to arrive to us. And they're saying this about Jesus. Now, I want us to be shaken out of our churchy Palm Sunday picture. 
Because some of you, you've been in church a little while. Others of you, you're like, oh, Palm Sunday, isn't that cute little story Christians tell about Jesus writing? It's just sort of weird, kind of quaint, you know. How sweet, you know. Every one of these symbols that are part of Palm Sunday, they represent something. A prophet named Zechariah had said that the great king, the great conquering king, would ride into Jerusalem on a colt. So the fact that Jesus rides in on this donkey is not a symbol of his humility. I know you've probably heard sermons like, oh, sweet Jesus, he rode in on a donkey. Isn't that sweet? No, no, that was a prophetic symbol. It was a way of saying, here comes that long-awaited king. And so he wrote it. The donkey itself is a symbol of his kingship. And then it says the people had palm branches I mean, what's this? Like, people are just, like, thrilled to be in the outdoors. and Like, let's get, grab some branches, would you? Like, get maybe some wildflowers while you're at it. No, no, no. Palm branches were a symbol of a revolution. In fact, about 150 years earlier, there was a radical named Judas Maccabees. Maybe you've heard about the Maccabean Revolt. The story of Hanukkah comes from this revolt. And Judas Maccabees overthrew the pagans who had desecrated the temple. And, and Judas Maccabees rides into Jerusalem and the people have palm branches and they're saying, yes, this is our revolutionary. This is the guy. This is the guy who's ending oppression. And they were so pumped about it that they minted coins with the image of a palm branch on it. So the palm branch is a symbol of revolution. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. The first Palm Sunday was not so much church in the park and much more political rally. Much more political rally. And I want you to catch the heat of this. Maybe you've seen images of the Arab Spring or Egypt in, in the square where people were shouting for their freedom and for democracy and all this stuff. Now you're getting closer to it. Because the cry on Palm Sunday was not, ooh, God's gonna take us to heaven. The cry on Palm Sunday was, come on, God, and crush the enemy, overthrow these Romans, bring a revolution. That's what they were saying. And if you don't catch that, then you'll miss why Jesus was so unexpected. You'll miss why the events of Good Friday were so, why they happened. You'll think it was just all sort of strange. Like, yeah, that is kind of weird, isn't it? Like, Palm Sunday, they're all happy. Good Friday, they're all like, crucify him. I mean, man, things escalated quickly. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. It's because on Palm Sunday, they were sure that their radical revolutionary had arrived. They were sure that the king had come. Now, let me just try to help us catch the feel of this. Yesterday, across the country, hundreds of thousands of teenagers peacefully demonstrated, gave moving speeches, and they weren't necessarily advocating positions or, or specific policies, but they're talking about saying, look, we, we're teenagers speaking out, saying, find a way to make it so that we can go to school and feel safe. Now, some of you, already you're tensing up. You're like, oh, I didn't like that, those silly teenagers. Others of you, you're like, man, that it was kind of inspiring. Like, that was amazing to watch. Just the fact that a rally raises different, provokes different responses, now you're catching the feeling of Palm Sunday that day. Because there's a rally in Jerusalem, and so there were whispers saying, hey, I think this, is guy, I think this guy's it. I think, I think it's Jesus. And then there are other people that said, oh, you're stupid. That's dumb. What? No, that's Joseph's kid. He's a carpenter. Never even seen him hold a sword. 
What are you talking? No. Rallies provoke very different responses. That's the idea. And in fact, if you were the kind of person that had the response to the rally yesterday that said, oh, this is terrible, these foolish teenagers or whatever, you know, they're just a, a pawn of the devil or whatever, crazy, you know, you might be even closer to the kind of disappointment that the Jews in Jerusalem felt. Because there were some people who said about yesterday's marches, they said, oh, this is amazing. We've been praying for a generation to rise up. We've been praying for a generation to get engaged. And now they're using their voice. So we're sort of like, wait, 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 but not like that. Yes, we want you to be involved, but not like that. Yes, we want you to care, but not about that, right? If you felt that, I'm not here to comment on whether that was right or wrong, but if you felt that, you're actually closer to how the first Jews in Jerusalem felt about Jesus. Because imagine the utter foolishness of a Messiah saying, I'm going to die. Excuse me. We got all pumped. We organized this whole rally because you're going to save us because you're going to kill. And he's like, yeah, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to be killed. And they're like, hmm, what? Right? So if you were upset yesterday because you thought, I want teenagers to be engaged, but not like that, that's close to the feeling of the Jews in Jerusalem that day that said, we want a Messiah, but not like that. We want a king, but not a king that's going to be killed. A king that will kill, right? I mean, that, that's what you really meant, right, Jesus? And so they rejected him. See, the reason they reject him on Good Friday was because he was not the king they were hoping for on Palm Sunday. And it's easy, man, it's easy to get pumped on Palm Sunday. It's easy to say, I want the king, until you discover that this is not a king like you've ever known. You see, it's not the donkey that makes Jesus a different kind of king. It's not the palm branches that make Jesus a different kind of king. All the other radicals and revolutionaries knew those symbols. It's the, the symbol that makes Jesus different and a different kind of king is the cross. It's the cross. And that's why as Christians, our lasting image of Jesus is not a palm branch. We don't hold up a palm branch and say, oh, I love how that speaks of Jesus. No, because we know the palm branch speaks of revolution. Our lasting image that has gone around the world that speaks of Jesus was an instrument of torture and horrific death. Who does that? Who takes the instrument of excruciating, shameful, agonizing death and says, in a nutshell, we're about that. We're about the cross. And so Christians were called people of the way of the cross because it's not so much just that Jesus is king, it's the kind of king that Jesus is. The cross-bearing king. The king that is killed and does not kill. The king who told his own followers to put away their swords. Oh, that's not the king we want. That's not the Jesus we want. It's really easy to be Christ-centered until you focus the lens and look a little more closely at Christ. Okay, you're, you're all about Jesus, but are you all about Jesus the crucified? Are you all about the way of the cross? Or are you just really a Roman who substituted Jesus as your mascot? 
Are you really a Roman who just wants power and empire and control and domination and forcefulness? It's just that you've switched out names from Caesar to Jesus. Or have you switched out symbols? It's less about the palm and more about the cross. It's less about the donkey that says he's a king as much as it is the cross that said he's the kind of king that would die for his enemies. That's when we start to catch how scandalous the cross is. That's when we start to squirm and understand, oh, I don't want that kind of Jesus. And so the people did reject him. And so the people did say, no, we don't want, no, no, a Messiah like that, a Messiah who keeps talking about a cross, no, they, no, we've had, no, no, shh, somebody, somebody just, and this is why you understand why the disciples on Good Friday disassociate themselves with Jesus. It's not because they didn't love him, it's because they were so embarrassed. They were so ashamed. They're like, dude, we were like your campaign managers, like we went all in. Like we were with you in the grassroots movements in Galilee and now you took the thing to Jerusalem and you got yourself killed? I got nothing to do with that. If you want to understand what made Judas betray Jesus and Peter deny Jesus, it's because of the scandal of the cross. And I'm not so sure we wouldn't have done the same thing. I'm not so sure that if we really thought, you're going to rule, you're going to take over, we're going to be in charge, we're going to get the world back, we're going to make Israel great again. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to die. I'm sorry, what? I got nothing to do with you. And so they rejected him. They disowned him. And Jesus in Luke 9 keeps coming. Jesus is the kind of king it keeps coming when the crowds are cheering and keeps coming when the crowds are jeering. Jesus is the kind of king that is going to come after you, whether you're praising him or spitting in his face. Jesus is the kind of king that's going to keep coming after you. Keeps on coming. He says, I know. It was nice when you were with me, but even when you're against me, I'm still coming after you. I'm still coming after you. And so Luke 9, in verse 22, earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. A few verses later, verse 44, he says again, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then, verse 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that Jesus steadfastly, somebody say steadfastly, steadfastly. There it is. Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. I love that the gospel writer says steadfastly. I love that Luke has already told us it wasn't like Jesus was like, cool, let's go to Jerusalem, and then shows up in Jerusalem and everybody's against him, and he's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. He knew. Guys, he knew. Jesus knew that as soon as he entered the city, they were going to kill him. He knew it. He knew he was going to suffer. 
And it doesn't say that Jesus tentatively, cautiously, with lots of procrastinating. No, it says Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. It's in the steadfast face of Jesus Christ that we see the steadfast love of God. It's in the steadfast face of Jesus that we see the steadfast love of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't know if God really loves me. I don't know if God's going to quit on me. I don't know if God will really give up on me. I don't know if that steadfast love really is a thing or if it's just something cute that we made up. Look at the face of Jesus. The face that was set steadfastly to Jerusalem all through this week, this holy week. As you journey with Jesus to the cross and then to the empty tomb, remember to look at his steadfast face. And in the steadfast face of Jesus, you see a God who doesn't stop coming after you. Didn't stop. Didn't quit when the crowds went away, when the applause went away, when the songs went away, but steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. And so it was that in the preaching of the early Christians, they point this out. Jesus, the crucified and risen. Acts 4, this is Peter preaching. And he says, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. He's talking about the cripple that's been healed. This is, and what's he quoting here? Psalm 118. This is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, Peter's saying, we thought it applied to Moses. We could think of other rulers in Israel's history that this applied to. But Peter's like, now we see the full picture. The ultimate one who was rejected is Jesus the crucified. The ultimate one who reveals to us God's steadfast love is the Jesus who steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem and to the cross and whom God in his own steadfast love raised Jesus up from the dead. And so now it's Jesus the crucified and the risen one. And for there is no other other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God's salvation for us has come in the crucified and risen Christ. God's salvation for us is right here in the crucified and risen Christ. Some people may try to tell you that God wasn't sure about you that he had to be talked into it, that Jesus on the cross changed God's mind about you, that God was really kind of bothered. But then Jesus died, and God was like, all right, come over here. What the cross shows you is that the Father and the Son were not acting against one another. Don't believe for a minute that the Father inflicts punishment on the Son. Don't believe that for a minute. Nobody Nobody in the history of Orthodox Christian theology has ever taught that. All the way back, a thousand years ago, Anselm said it, the Father and the Son are acting together. Even before that, St. Paul wrote, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. John in his gospel, the famous verse at every football game, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. And then Jesus will follow it up and say, and no one takes my life from me I lay it down. The Father's sending is the Son's giving. They are one and the same thing. Do not split up the Trinity. 
The Father's sending is the Son's self-giving. The two meet together. And so in Jesus, you see that God didn't need to change his mind about you. God already made up his mind about you, that he was going to rescue you, that he was going to save you, that he was going to take upon himself all of your sin and all of your shame, that he was going to suffer the scorn and the rejection, that he was going to take in his body the very judgment and punishment so that you can be rescued and set free. God already decided that. He already made up his mind about you. And so in Christ is God's salvation for us. Jesus, the crucified and risen. And for us this morning, the challenge is, will you follow this Christ, the crucified and risen one? Will you follow him not just on the Palm Sunday happy days, you're the king. Will you follow him in a way of the cross? This whole Christian life. See, here's the thing. When you hear this, the cross is offensive to all of us who want to grasp for power. And maybe there's, there's some of us that lean towards power, control, victory, dominance. And the cross confronts that and says, no, no, no. The way of the cross is suffering and self-giving. And then others of us say, okay, well, maybe there's many ways. Maybe there's others more than Jesus. Maybe there's salvation in lots of ways. And the cross offends us there and says there's only one way. There is no other name by which we are saved. Because only one was God and man who came on the cross to demonstrate God's steadfast love. That's not like... Religious prejudice, oh, you're so closed-minded. That's just saying, who else did that? Who else did that? Nobody. Who else was the God-man who did that? Not Buddha, not any other prophet, not any other teacher. So we're not saying something that springs from arrogance. We're saying something from the depth of steadfast love. It says, but nobody else did that. Nobody else became that kind of king. Nobody else walked that road. Nobody else took up that cross. Nobody else was raised up. And so God's salvation is only here for us in Jesus, the crucified and risen. Would you bow your heads this morning? God, let the cross rattle us today. Let the cross shake us today. Let the cross offend us today where we need to be shaken and offended. Let the cross call us to a new way of following you, Jesus. Let it call us out of palm branch Christianity that wants the king and the victory, but, not, but without a cross. Call us into the Christianity of the crucified and risen Christ. Call us into that. Call us into that.